Well, this morning we continue in our study of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn uh, in them to the book of Acts. There are Bibles available on the back table as well as the uh, passage for today is printed in your bulletin. You may follow along um, in either place. If you're visiting with us, we have been studying this book uh, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. And just to bring you up to speed, since we're only in the end of chapter 4, chapter 1 was Jesus ascending into glory. Chapter 2 was the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God descending in power upon His people. The end of chapter 2, we saw a church that desired to be faithful to what God had called her to be. Chapter 3, we were reminded that the broken are made whole. And chapter 4 was opposition. Opposition. And yet despite opposition to its message, the Spirit of God gives boldness to those who proclaim it and to those who asked for it. And that's where we left off last week in the beginning or the middle of chapter 4. This narrative of the young church. And today we pick up where we left off. Chapter 4, verse 32. And we're going to read through verse 11 of chapter 5. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them, was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Image. That's the word I want to implant in your minds for a moment. Image. It's one of those words that we hear a lot about in our day, in our age, in our culture. In fact, image is everything, some will say. In our culture, there are even image consultants. I hope there's not one here this morning, because I'm about to offend you. Personal Images Incorporated, for example, offers a variety of services for professionals who want to make an investment to upgrade their image. We can help you project positive and lasting first impressions, shape other people's perceptions of you, gain the professional and personal visual image that you desire, build self-confidence by helping you feel good about the way that you look and sound. Personal Images Incorporated. Google it if you're interested. Sounds good, right? There's even help for pastors. Yes, Ed Young, Pastor Ed Young from Texas, runs pastorfashion.com with the motto, From the Runway to the Pulpit. And he will give me tips on what to wear, on how to wear it, and when to wear it. And indeed, perhaps some of you think I need those tips. If so, I don't want to know. (laughs) I'm not saying it's bad to look good in the pulpit or at work. But I will say this, there is an unhealthy concern in our culture and in our church about what people think of us. And about what we are willing to do to give them impressions of us that maybe aren't accurate. And today, though I got you laughing, today is no laughing matter because today we see the very, very worst of it. This is a story that teaches us, among other things, that image consulting has no place in the church. No place in the church. This account this morning is a tale of two men in the early church. Two historical figures. One who is concerned about everyone else, it seems, and the other who is concerned about what everyone else thinks of him. So the title of the sermon is Generosity or Hypocrisy. And the question is, what will define the church? It was a question that had to be wrestled with then. It's a question that has to be wrestled with today. There are three things. Three things that I think this passage teaches us this morning. And I want to walk through them with you. And the first one is this. A generous gospel creates a generous church. A generous gospel creates a generous church. First of all, before we get to the hard words of chapter 5, we're confronted with the end of chapter 4. 
And the Spirit of God who has been working, remember this is the Acts of the Apostles, yes, but it's more importantly and more pointedly the Spirit of God. It's the Acts of the Spirit of Jesus in the first century. And the Spirit of God is doing something beautiful and something powerful in the lives of these men and women who came from all over the empire to celebrate Pentecost and now have been changed and transformed. And now they're calling themselves the church of Jesus. They have come to know things. They have seen and experienced things that will forever change who they are and how they go about their lives. Some were from Jerusalem. Some had come from afar and just couldn't leave. They didn't want to go back home. They're caught up in this community and in this message. And and Luke describes this community. He again describes the community. They are of one heart and mind. They are sharing everything. They are selling property for those who are in need. And there is great grace upon them. Those who have been shown great grace long to show great grace. Just a couple chapters ago in our study, for those of you who have been here, Luke gave us an earlier snapshot of the early church. And it was this almost idyllic picture of a people that was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship and the worship of God's people. They were devoted to the needs around them. And here he takes another pause and gives us another snapshot of what the church ought to be. And if we look at the descriptions that he gives the early church here in Acts chapter 4, if we look at those descriptions, this is first what God intended all along for His people. In Deuteronomy 15, there will be no poor among you, God says to His people. If among you one of your brothers shall become poor in any of the towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but open your hand and lend him his whatever is sufficient for his need. What's happening in Acts chapter 4 is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you and I, Father, are one. This is what Jesus said would define the church in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this you will know, they will know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. And of course, the book of 1 John, many of you know well, John reminds the church again and again of the centrality of love and giving yourself for your brother and uniting in faith and in community to him. A generous gospel produces a generous grace that creates a generous people. This is always a challenge to us. Always a challenge to us in our affluent, individualistic world. And notice that their love was not shown in some abstract, undefinable way, but it was, it was love that was easily measured. I mean, how was the love measured? It was measured in 
Money. In purchase price. The extent of their sacrifice was clear. They were selling their things for each other. And Luke gives us a example, a man who takes center stage in this generous grace, this generous giving. It's a man by the name of Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because he's such an encouragement, the son of encouragement. We don't know much about Barnabas, at least here. He'll show up again later in the book of Acts. But he is apparently a man that needs to be recognized and a man that we should be challenged by. Because first of all, this passage causes us to ask ourselves, what is the sacrificial state of our love for one another? I don't want to spend an undue amount of time here. We spent some time here in the end of chapter 2 when we talked about them caring for one another. But how are we distributing our resources in measurable ways? Time, money, cars, houses. And not just... Not just that, but why do you do that? As we're about to see, the sacrifice, the generosity that flows from a generous gospel means nothing if the heart is not in the right place. And so this passage begins with a very kind of in-your-face Worldly application. Yes, how are we distributing our resources? Are we a giving church? Are we sacrificially loving one another? That the kingdom might go forth. That the needs of this body might be cared for. But then the passage immediately takes us deeper. And it aims right at our hearts. There was one who made himself nothing. There was one who took the form of a servant. There's one who laid aside the glory of heaven and humbled himself to death that you might give. A generous gospel creates a generous church. That's the first thing. But the other side of the coin is those hard, those hard verses of chapter 5. So that's the second thing I want us to see this morning is this. All sin is serious. All sin is serious. Some of you in this room may be fans of Downton Abbey. I'm not ashamed to say that I like Downton Abbey. My wife and I watch Downton Abbey. It's a good show. Well, it was a good show until out of nowhere, Sybil, that sweet younger sister, dies. It was a shock in the show, and it changed everything for the family. happens all the time on screen. But here in real life, in real time, in real history, we have a moment 
an episode where people are crying out, did that really just happen? Did that really just happen? This is one of the most dramatic and the most memorable events, not just in the early church, but in the Scriptures in the New Testament. And I must say, one of the things I love about the Scriptures, and one of the things you ought to love about God's Word, is its honesty. So many times in the Bible, we are confronted with characters. We are confronted with stories that if you were making this stuff up, or if you were trying to create a movement that really wasn't a movement, you wouldn't include stuff like this. If you thought the early church was going to be all roses and rainbows, you're wrong. And Luke is giving you Exhibit A to show you that fact. Exhibit A is what reminds us that sin is so serious. Now, I know that we in this room, I know that many of you believe in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. doesn't mean that all sin immediately causes physical death, but it means that sin deserves death. It means that as a result of sin, death will occur in our lives. And yet we come to a story like this, and I don't know about you, but you're asking that question, really? Did that just happen? Come on, Peter. Relax. You see, I think we all are prone to the tendency of naturally minimizing and characterizing our sin. We have three sizes. We have the large sins of adultery and and murder. We have the medium-sized sins of deceit and lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. And then we have the small sins of anger and, and impatience. And we say that word rebellion, and it sounds serious, and yet we forget that at the heart of all sin is that very word. Rebellion. And it began in the garden, in in the eating of a forbidden fruit, which caused banishment and eventual death. It continued throughout the Old Testament as Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire in Leviticus 10 and and they were consumed and they died on the spot. And, And then Achan takes the spoils of war in Joshua 7. And he was dealt with decisively. And how about Uzzah? Who put his hand on the Ark of the Covenant to steady it because it was going to tip. And he struck dead in 2 Samuel 6. What about all that? Well, the bottom line is sin is serious. And all sin is serious because sin is rebellion against God. And it is God's prerogative to deal with sin as decisively as it's needed. But you're still thinking, I know you are thinking, but what is happening here? And why is this happening? Well, let's talk a little bit about Ananias and his wife Sapphira and what prompted their deaths. First of all, their sin was not the sin of withholding part of the purchase price for the field. The field was theirs. 
They voluntarily could have given as much of the purchase price of the field as they wanted to give. The sin was the lie. The sin was the hypocrisy of saying, here is all of the proceeds for the field, but it's not all the proceeds of the field. It's what one commentator called Christian fraud. What another guy called pious pretense. Bottom line, going back to the opening illustration, they were all about their image. Oh, they wanted to look so generous. They wanted to look more generous than they were. They wanted to look spiritual. They wanted a nickname like Son of Encouragement. But they didn't want to make the personal sacrifice that that would require. That was the issue. And it was a sin of deceit not just against the church, not just against Peter and the apostles, it was against the Spirit of God who was there in that place, in power. But still, you may be asking, why Why the decisive response of Peter? We've seen a fiery Peter before, but we've never seen him like he is here. Some even say, some writers even say, you know, Peter was calling down a curse in anger, and this was all Peter's doing. It's not Peter. This is God who is dealing with this sin. This is God's displeasure. This is His response. This is His judgment. And so we ask, well, why God? Why are you dealing with this sin in this way? Well, first, I think we have to think about the context. This was, no doubt about it, this was a crucial time in the history of God's church. This church was young. Its trajectory was being set. She needs to be reminded that sin is serious. Not only that, but this kind of sin is the kind of sin that immediately fractures fellowship. It fractures the oneness that Jesus had prayed for. The oneness that we just saw a few verses earlier was being exhibited by the early church and already it's rupturing by deceit in their midst. And so it's the kind of sin that needs to be dealt with decisively and quickly before it spreads. You see, it's no mistake that Luke here in his account of the early church gives us Barnabas, a man of transparent generosity, and Ananias and his wife Sapphira, the scheming, image-conscious givers. See, he puts these two as a comparison for us And he says, behind that hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira is love of self, not love of others. And maybe even more important than that, it's behind that hypocrisy is a false view of, of who God is. A view that denies that He knows and that He cares about our hearts. A view that thinks one can be right with Him merely by externals.
So God in his infinite wisdom made the decision that the church needed the fear of God literally to be placed in their midst, which is exactly what happens here. And it's interesting to note that in verse 11, for the first time in the book, we find the word church. It's the first time Luke uses it. The word ecclesia. And it's in the context of the fear of God. Indeed, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it is the beginning and the foundation of the church of Jesus. And so what effect does a story like this, or ought a story like this, have on us? Why is it here? Why is it preserved for us? Well, a couple things, three things. First of all, I think we ought to be struck again with the holiness of God and the seriousness of our sin. We ought to be struck with the holiness of God and the seriousness of our sin. That's the first thing. The minor prophets help us with that every week. But two, I think we ought to be struck by our own tendency to be people pleasers. To be concerned about our image. To give the appearance of something other than what we are rather than to live secure before the world and before each other as sons and daughters of the King. And third, I think we ought to rejoice that there's mercy and there's grace and there's hope for hypocrites. Because if we ask ourselves, if we were in the early church, would we have survived? Literally, would we have survived? And we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were true believers, but the Scriptures don't tell us. But what we do know is that for those who have made a show of godliness, those who have ever made a show of godliness, there is forgiveness in Christ. There is hope for the struggling heart. And so he invites you again back to that generous gospel that says, come, confess and repent and rest in me. Well, there's one last thing I want us to think about for just a few minutes. One last truth from Acts chapter 5, and it's this. A disciplined church is a changed church. A disciplined church is a changed church. And I don't mean a disciplined church in the sense of be disciplined, but I mean a disciplined church in the sense of a church that has been disciplined. It's our hope for our children that not just our example of faith, however woefully inadequate that might be, but even the harsh punishments that we give them, that we have laid down in love to them, will eventually reap in their lives, in their hearts, godliness. In Acts chapter 5, what, what's happening here, what happened to this couple was the Lord's gracious discipline. And I think it had two, at least two profound effects on the church. The same profound effects that it ought to have on this church on the church of today. And the first effect is that if they didn't understand or if they forgot 
they have now been reminded that life is a spiritual battle. I know I don't need to remind some of you of this, but I fear that others of us in this room, we don't think about it enough. One of the key things that I wanted us to think about last week was the fact that when opposition hits the church, as it did last week from the authorities of the day, it's important for us to frame it in spiritual terms. What I mean by that is what Paul says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I'm convinced that we easily forget this. And therefore, we too easily try to fix and deal with our conflict, our suffering, our opposition on our own resources, out of our own reserves. And we forget what God is doing in us and through us and around us by His Spirit. You notice how Peter speaks of what's going on in Ananias' heart. Why has Satan filled your heart? He doesn't absolve Ananias of responsibility, but he frames the actions that he has taken in the context of spiritual warfare. What began as an external assault on the church of Jesus has now turned to a completely different tactic. Almost as if the evil one has given up on the authorities trying to influence the church, at least for now. And now he's going to start on the inside. To an assault within. You see, Satan is real and the forces of darkness are real and they don't want to see the church survive. They don't want to see the church thrive. And brothers and sisters, I think we've seen it here at Ascension. But we need not be discouraged. We need not be discouraged that we have been at times under attack, but rather the church must always, as Peter will later say in his letter, be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour We wage war by recognizing this battle and not going to our own resources, but recognizing that it's grace, grace, grace that we need all the time. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We see it in the book of Acts. We've seen it in the first four chapters. The early church prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed some more. But I think there's another effect. I think there's another effect that changes the church. Because there's no doubt that this event in the life of the early church had a soul-searching effect on the church like few other events could. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that one of the effects 
was the commitment, at least from this point forward, as God gave grace to live lives of transparency, to live lives of genuineness with each other. See, I think the early church, at least for a time, committed to be a community with no secrets. Secure in Christ, with the healthy fear of God, they likely refused, at least for a time, they refused to wear masks. They refused to pretend that they were something other than what they were. And they committed themselves to be genuine and to be on guard. And that's a practice, that's something that we as the church need to be called back to again and again. It's a lesson some of us have been forced to learn very recently. There was something that was said last Sunday night by our brother, and it was beautiful. I have no secrets, and yet I know that I have a Father who loves me. See, that's the kind of community that the Gospel creates. That's the kind of power that the Gospel has. That's the kind of Gospel that creates generosity noticed by the world that shows the seriousness of sin but changes us forever because of a much greater and a much gracious, much more gracious Savior. I pray that we would be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You for the truths today which challenge us which challenge our hearts, which challenge the overflow of our hearts and our actions and our generosity, how we view You, how we view our sin, how we view our life together as a church. Holy Spirit, would You take these words as weak as they are, as inadequate as they may be to reflect the glory that penned them, and would You apply them to our lives in whatever way you see fit. For the glory of your name, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.